You're listening to episode 141 of Mid-America Reformed Seminary's Roundtable Podcast, a broadcast where the faculty of Mid-America discuss Reformed theology and cultural issues from a Reformed perspective. I'm Jared Luchaborg, Director of Marketing, and I thank you for tuning in. In today's episode, Dr. Venema concludes his assessment of the doctrine of hell, looking at the imagery of fire in the language of eternity that we read of in Scripture, and then he answers arguments that state that the doctrine of hell is incompatible with what we know of the love and justice of God, and that this doctrine mars the perfection and glory of the eternal state. To the language of Hell being a lake of fire or the the consequence under God's judgment for the wicked being cast away into that lake of fire, being consumed as through fire. What are we to make of that? Doesn't that suggest that such who are consumed by fire, they are thereby annihilated? And I'll suggest tonight that there are two ways of getting at this question. One is Another another theologian's term, hermeneutical, it's how you read and interpret the language or the metaphorical or figurative usage of fire. Should we take that language literally and then playing off of that literal meaning, just as a fire reduces a big log eventually to nothing but a residue of ash and a bit of a lingering smell of what was consumed through fire? My answer to that is, in a very short form, is no. This is metaphor. If it were literal, how could hell be simultaneously termed a place of outer darkness? I don't know about you, but literal fires and real literal darkness don't coexist. The one has to give way to the other. Either the fire is extinguished and all becomes black as night, or the fire burns brightly and the darkness is driven away. This is imagery. In fact, one of the things I'd like to stress this evening is where we get into trouble with the doctrine of hell, particularly in evoking, provoking reactions of revulsion and the like, is in part, not in, not in whole, not even in the bigger part, but in part pressing too hard in a literalistic way some of the imagery. What is the sense of outer darkness in the Scriptures? Well, you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 and you'll read that when God has a kind of overture, think of a piece of music, it begins with an overture. Well, the overture to God's work of creation, calling into the world by his power and wisdom, this beautiful cosmos world that uh, displays his glory and power, was what? Let there be light. We've heard the benediction that the light of God's countenance should shine upon us. Light in the scriptures. When God appears in the way of his grace and condescending mercy to show favor, to communicate himself and to bring his people to himself in salvation, he comes in the outshining glory and splendor of his light. Think of the final state, the new heavens and the new earth. They shall have no need of the sun, because God will be their light. And they shall see him and look upon his face, and he shall look upon them, and they shall have fellowship, dwelling of God with his people in the new creation temple, 
forever. So darkness is the antithesis of the light. By the way, the reason, and it's appropriate to this season of the year, one of the signals of Christ's abandonment under God's judgment in drinking the cup, the wages of our sin, suffering their just penalty in his own person, was darkness comes over all the earth from the sixth to the ninth hour. Out of which, at the end of which, our Lord cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's why Calvin says the core of hell is to be cut off, excommunicated from God's favor and blessing. To be delivered over to your unwillingness to enjoy fellowship through reconciliation by the blood of Jesus with him. My point is an interpretive point. It's an undue pressing of the literalism of the language of a consuming fire to suggest that the only thing that can be drawn from that by way of conclusion is that those who are consumed, they cease, are extinguished from existence altogether. Now, simultaneous with the language of consuming fire and outer darkness, you have the language in a passage such as Mark 9, verse 48, where our Lord speaks of their worm. And notice the, the adjective there. There is a plural. Their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, that's a, it's an ugly image. It's a, a revolting image. It's the image of maggots chewing, eating, rotting flesh. But for our purpose as it relates to the imagery Scripture employs to describe hell, uh, consuming fire, outer darkness, a place where the worm never ceases to devour and to eat away at the flesh. These are all images that speak of aspects, dimensions of the fearful reality that hell represents be cut off from the light of God's favor and his countenance, not to live under the smile of his embrace and his loving kindness toward his own in Jesus Christ. It's to be cast away uh, from his presence, to be separated from the God for whom we were created uh, in fellowship and in communion and with all those who are God's. That's one dimension of the issue. The other dimension is that the language of fire that is employed in the Scriptures is expressly language that is very hard, if at all possible, of being squared with the notion of annihilation. Let me illustrate it this way. It's again and again called an unquenchable fire, an inextinguishable fire. Now, again, it's a very graphic and gruesome thought to contemplate, but that's suggestive precisely of the continued being existence of those who are the recipients of that fire. I mean, here's just exactly the way it works. When that which the fire consumed is consumed, it ceases to burn. Nothing more to keep it alive, right? Same would be true of the worm. That's why in very, very 
serious passages uh, in terms of their description of what becomes of the wicked. Take Revelation 14 again as an example or possibly Revelation 20. The fire is said to be not only inextinguishable, but the smoke that rises signaling that the fire burns is rising, it says in the text, very explicitly forever and ever, which precisely says to us that not only is the imagery not to be pressed in its literal sense so as to warrant the notion of extinction of being, but the imagery functions in these passages in a way that suggests it's ongoing, never-ending, never-ceasing, never-terminating in the no-longer-existing, the ceasing-to-be of those who are subject to the power of God's justice in hell. Now, the third difficulty that is often raised in connection with the language of hell, I said the, the language of destruction, the language of a consuming fire. The third biblical objection has to do with maybe it's an eternity in the sense of eternal punishment as in by way of its result, it is never undone. That's the end. You everlastingly cease to be because of God's judgment upon you. It's not eternal in the sense of the felt experience of being under God's wrath. I point out something I just also said in connection with the imagery of fire and the like. It's precisely an eternality or a being eternal in the sense of never-ending, never-ceasing. In the interest of time, I won't go back to those passages in Revelation, but let me take you to that passage I read at the outset this evening, and it's a passage that's often cited in this connection, Matthew chapter 25. At the end of that passage, notice there's there's a contrast made between what becomes of the sheep and what becomes of the goats in this great divorce, to use C.S. Lewis's language. Those, on the one hand, the righteous... They are said by uh, Christ to go and enter into their reward, which is an eternal reward. I'll pick it up at verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink, and so on. Then they will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger? He will answer, Truly I say to you, as often as you did it to one of the least of these, did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And now notice the summary statement, verse 46, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into what? Eternal life. Now it's very difficult to argue, as some argue, that in the instance of the righteous, eternal means never-ending, ongoing, never-ceasing to enjoy the fullness of life. And on the other hand, that the punishment, same word is used, that is eternal, is not never-ending, 
ongoing, never coming to an end, in that sense eternal, but only eternal in the sense of once it's been meted out, the one upon whom that punishment is meted ceases to be. In other words, the parallel between the issue of unto eternal life and the unto eternal punishment suggests that eternal in both cases has the same meaning. It's to experience either the fullness of life in communion with God or to experience the reality of ruin, desolation, death, undoing under God's justice, suffering the punishment consequence of one's sin throughout all eternity. Let me come to the second set of objections that I called theological. What of the objection, how is this consistent with what we know of God as being loving? God is love, the Bible says. God is one who abounds in love, who is slow and reluctant in his love to respond, repaying us for our iniquities in the way of his just displeasure. How can, you com- can, how can you possibly embrace a doctrine of God punishing sinners unrepentant and unredeemed through faith in Jesus Christ everlastingly in hell and still maintain that that would be consistent with what we know of God's love? Well, let me say a couple of things by way of a response to that. The first thing I would say is, Don't be too quick to respond, as I said earlier. Whatever we want to say by way of response, and one of our responses has to be God is also just. Justice, too, belongs essentially. It's one of God's properties. He cannot but be just. He is justice in the same way in which he is goodness. He is loving. So he's always going to act in whatever he does in ways that are consistent, because he's a God of truth, he cannot lie. He can't deny himself. He will act always in character, in keeping with what we know him to be in his goodness and as well his justice and his holiness. That's true. But one thing we mustn't miss in this objection is this. It's one thing to affirm that God in his justice has determined not to save all fallen sinners who are become lost and perishing through the sin of Adam and through their own sins. And that that accords with justice and righteousness. He was not obliged to save anyone. But it's another thing to take the position, and it's sometimes suggested among us that we may take the position, that even as God delights, and takes peculiar delight in showing his goodness, grace, and mercy to his people, and in the largeness of his mercy to redeem through Christ by his blood a people without number from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. That is, if I may use the expression, the proper work of God. You have to be a little bit careful not to place that proper display in his good pleasure for the sake of Christ in love to save his own 
and say that in every way likewise, in an exact parallel to the way in which God delights to show love, he takes pleasure in the death of the wicked. This is what theologians call the question and the difficulty of the well-meant offer of the gospel. Because we are told in the word of God that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, become flesh when he saw the unbelief of many of his own kinsmen, to use Paul's language in Romans, unbelieving and impenitent, he didn't respond with perverse delight, not wringing his hands in lament and despair, but uh, chafing at the bit, to use rather graphic language, at the prospect of giving these people their just desserts. There are some fire and brimstone preachers who give the impression that in the same way God delights to save, he also delights to damn and to ultimately consign to hell. Well, he may will to do so in his sovereign good pleasure, but he doesn't execute that will and good pleasure absent overtures of mercy that are extended to every single fallen son of or daughter of Adam. All the day long he holds out in this day that the book of Hebrews says is a day of salvation, a day of opportunity. Think of Peter's words in 2 Peter 3, 9. God in his patience, not willing that any, here's our word, perish, is reserving the hand of his judgment in order that the gospel may be preached. And think of Paul. I don't think we can accuse Paul of some bad theology when he says, my prayer to God, my heart's desire. He even says at the beginning of chapter 9 that were it possible, he might consider being damned. Were it to lead to the salvation of these countrymen of his, these kinsmen who are turning from Christ in unbelief. What am I getting at? What I'm getting at is that we have to be very, 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 very circumspect in the way we present the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and the doctrine of the gospel call to faith and salvation in Christ together with the fearful prospect that those who reject, who spurn, who refuse, who disobey the overtures of God's mercy held out to us in Christ, that he should justly condemn them to hell. Yes, indeed, justly condemn them to hell, but not in the sense of an exact parallel, that he should take the same delight in doing so consistent with his justice and good pleasure as he does in showing mercy. That'll make a whole lot of difference in the way you approach sinners in Christ's name. Not anxiously anticipating, looking forward to perversely their loss, their perishing, but desiring for them the same good that you've come to know by God's grace in Christ. Without exception, and I'm on, I'm at least in good company in this, if I'm not in scriptural company, I'm with Calvin, no less a Calvinist than Calvin said, that a Christian should approach every sinner with the heartfelt desire that that sinner would come to know God's love and grace in Jesus Christ. Now, having said all of that, that disclaimer having been uh, put forward, it is certainly true 
that appeals against the doctrine of hell that say it's inconsistent with God's love are not compatible with what we know of the God of Scripture, who is a God not only who is loving and good, but also one who deals justly with sinners who bear his image, who have failed to respond, though opportunity was given to them. By the way, this is a difficult question that someone might want to ask, and I'll anticipate it. What about people who don't hear the gospel? You know, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 1, uh, to wreak or bring destruction to those who obey not the gospel. What are those who have never heard? That's a difficult question. Uh, The short answer to that question is God will deal with all persons in a manner that is consistent with what privileges were given to them. To those to whom much has been given, of them properly much may be expected. To those to whom less is given, the justice of God may require that by virtue of their failure to do with what God gave them, whether it be through general revelation or special revelation, they are judged accordingly. That's exactly why. One of the passages I was thinking of reading before tonight's class is a passage in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, where the author of Hebrews says that those who have had the greatest privilege, they are the ones who will experience the most severe consequence in the way of God's just displeasure and vengeance for having trampled underfoot the blood of his own son afresh, in a manner of speaking, then those who... It's what in the Bible is called the sin of the high hand, the deliberate, knowing, willing refusal to respond to God's gracious overtures compared to the person who has not had that same privilege. What does our Lord say in the gospel? It It will be worse for you in the day of judgment than it was for the Ninevites who repented at the preaching of Jonah. Bear that in mind. So that, those are my comments regarding the objection, while well, it's not consistent with God's love. What of the complaint about it's unjust? Now, it's difficult for our minds to understand, but it is a matter of justice. Justice is at bottom governed by what sometimes referred to is the lex talionis, the eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. There is injustice always this demand that there be consistent with the misdeed a corresponding punishment. Now, we all know that in a very obvious way. Our child inadvertently spills his or her glass of milk on the table. The younger the child, the more you overlook the piccadillo. You are tender-hearted and kind, particularly if you're a grandparent, and that doesn't require any undue punishment or severe discipline. Now, as a child gets older, has more understanding, maturity, responsibility, and they should not only offend, not inadvertently, but deliberately, knowingly, willfully, defiantly, well, then maybe just a little more uh, of a consequence. Maybe something that goes beyond the popular notion of time out. <laughs> My day, it certainly was more than time out. But anyway, we'll leave that to the side. In a more serious vein, in the administration of justice in any 
ordered society, we all know that there's a difference between a misdemeanor and a, uh, a more serious crime of felony or a capital offense. And one of the greatest offenses against when you commit treason, you commit offense against the whole people of which you are a part. That's a capital offense, usually requires the death penalty, right? Well, here's the point. What's disproportionate about an everlasting in accordance with his justice consequence. We'll just use that word. It's a little more generic than punishment. We won't use the word torture. We'll call it a just consequence for a deed committed. I can't think of any act of treason that comes even close to the capital offense that we commit in Adam and in our own defiance transgression against God's most high majesty. He is, after all, the infinitely good, benevolent creator and Lord of all things of we too. The point I'm getting at is, though we may be finite creatures, our sin and disobedience before God and against God, it's not just before God, it's against God, in spite of him being the giver of every good and perfect gift, what do we give him in return for what he's given to us? We violate his holy law. And we even do it in the context of his having warned us about the consequence of such a violation. The day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Well, what am I getting at? I'm getting at this. There's nothing disproportionate. The offense is infinite. It's immeasurable. You can't get your mind around or ultimately comprehend. This is exactly why we of all people are the last to point our fingers at others and not understand the language of the Apostle Paul in First Timothy. It's a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Have you ever thought about that? That's a strange thing for him. It's obviously exaggerating. It's hyperbole. That's what he's doing. He's exaggerating. He's just saying that... It's preacher's talk. That's all that is. No, not if you think at all for long about what human sin is in relationship to God. My point basically is the punishment does fit the crime. There's no disproportion between an everlasting being cut off from fellowship and favor with God under his just displeasure in hell and the capital offense offenses that we have and we continue to commit against him. It accords with justice. In that sense, maybe I could put it this way, as one writer uh, suggests, hell is not a torture chamber. Hell is a place where God meets out that just consequence that is appropriate to our offense, absent Christ having for us suffered in our place that consequence. Now, uh, another consideration in connection with this, it's no accident in my judgment that in the contemporary theological and ecclesiastical world, there's a great deal of displeasure and unwillingness to embrace the biblical teaching, however difficult and sobering it may be, concerning hell. 
that in that kind of context there is a like displeasure and unwillingness in some places to affirm the gospel truth that what our Lord Jesus Christ suffered in our place was that hellish agony, separation from God's favor and embrace that was our deserving. He paid the wages of our sin. He, the just for the unjust, the holy, harmless, and undefiled, bore the wrath of God that was due us. By the way, that whole question of disproportion of penalty, you might apply that same objection to, is it just that in his sufferings he should have obtained and suffered and thereby obtained the eternal, never-ending consequence of your and my sin in a manner of speaking in a moment. Well, that's why, for example, the Heidelberg Catechism says that he could do so because he is himself infinite God. He's both with all true God and true and righteous man. He's just the mediator whom we need. He could suffer the infinite consequence in the way of God's justice of your and my sin, bearing that penalty that was due us in his person because he was not only our brother sharing our flesh and blood, the Son of God become man, but he was himself the Son of God. He was God suffering as the Son in communion with the Father and the Holy Spirit out of his great love with which he loved us, securing our redemption from the consequence of sin. What's my point? My point is, it's no accident that the same argument that obtains against the doctrine of hell is popularly employed in our day against what we historically understand to be the doctrine of Christ propitiating. One of the words used in the New Testament for our Lord's work of atonement. He appeased, satisfied, he bore, he took in our place that hellish agony and wrath consequence of sin that was due us. And by virtue of his having done so, has secured our release, reconciled us to God, and established us in the right such that we have the promise of eternal life. Nothing can take that promise away from us. Well, what about what are the last objection? The, uh, the objection that this would leave a blemish, a spot, a blot, you might say, on in the ultimate consummation and fulfillment of all God's purposes for the redemption of his people, that at the end of the day there would still be a realm occupied by persons who have mere existence in hell and experience God's just judgment, but have not been restored and set right in the sense of brought to re-established fellowship with God and others. This would be like a story that ends only on the one side well, but on the other side rather badly. And everybody likes a good story that ends well. And you can leave uh, feeling good about the outcome because everybody is included and no one is left behind, nor does anyone suffer any un- 
desirable uh, outcome. Well, what about that? Well, that would only be true if, and that's the implication of this argument, the reality of hell or eternal punishment was somehow a blemish or somehow a, an evil, let's just call it an evil, unredeemed. But it's not an evil unredeemed. It's a manifestation of God's justice vindicated. God setting the world to rights means that ultimately justice is done, either by Christ having endured on behalf of his own people the consequences of their sins, or those who would not have Christ save them, suffering that consequence in their own persons. But that's not a blemish. That's not an unfinished story that has some lack of resolution. That's a consequence that ultimately reveals that justice By the way, in the most profound sense, we all of us as image bearers of God who reflect our likeness to God have an inexpungible sense of the need for things to be set to rights. I don't don't know what kind of children you've had or grandchildren, but they're all pretty worried that they're not ultimately getting justice, right? Justice! My children complain to this day that when they were young, Dad, on a few occasions, says, I don't really care who committed the crime. You're all going to pay. Okay? Everybody's going to their room when we get back from the beach because I've had it. And I have to admit, true confession, uh, I feel a little badly when they tell those stories because I don't think that was good parenting. I should have done the investigation and set things to rights. Well, in a world like this, you know, just to put it in political terms, where you have people who are leading workers whose only reason for being in the country is to make money to pay for their children and their wives and their uh, livelihood, being marched by men wearing masks with long knives to be beheaded. Now, I'm not making a point here about those particular perpetrators of that wickedness. But what I am saying is we all want the judge of all the earth to ultimately do right, vindicate justice, set the whole world to rights. We never get anything more than partial justice here. We get all kinds of miscarriages of justice in the church and outside of the church, and in all kinds of ways, justice is not done. Behind this whole question and difficult topic that we're addressing this evening is this big question. At the end of the day, where there is unconfessed sin, where there is a Savior whose overtures of mercy have been treated with contempt, where there have been people persisting in their disobedience to the gospel, there have been those who would not have God in their knowledge, who are without excuse because the power and wisdom of God have been made known to them through the things that God has made, but they worship the creature rather than the creator. At the end of the day, does the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, does God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit intend to set things to rights? You know, it's interesting, just as an aside, even the most robust universalist 
reserves a special category for a few exceptions. Now, they don't include themselves in the exceptions, but uh, maybe it's Hitler, Stalin, notorious sinners, so-called offenders. Why is that? I think it's an intimation of a recognition that uh, part of the good outcome in the proper sense of the word is that God not only display his goodness, love, and mercy in the salvation of that great innumerable throng of those whom he redeems through Christ, but that he also meets out, does what we want any just judge to do in a court of law, pass a sentence that cannot be gainsaid. Now, it's one of the interesting things about the Word of God in Scripture is that in its representation of the final state, in the context of the judgment that precedes the final state, you have this imagery of the vindication and display of God's righteousness such that every mouth is stopped. That's imagery saying there's nobody in the court or who bears witness to the judgment rendered who is able to stand up in the court and say, the judge of all the earth has not done right. There will be not a whisper of complaint in the day of the revelation of the justice of God in vindicating his people and condemning his peoples and his enemies justly. But I have to add just one additional observation. I intimated it when I made reference to C.S. Lewis's somewhat allegorical representation of heaven and hell, and it's this. One thing we often forget on this question of is the justice God executes in the punishment of the wicked in hell in accordance with what is right and just. What we forget is that the imagery of Scripture regarding those whom God consigns to hell is that of impenitent sinners who are impenitent still. That's one of the things that C.S. Lewis captures well, and I alluded to it in the first half of the class tonight. Don't make the mistake of thinking that when this verdict is rendered, that suddenly the occupants of hell are all lamenting their bad mistake and saying, we love you, God, and we love those who love you. And we want to enjoy fellowship with you and fellowship with those who are yours. That's not how they're portrayed. You know the imagery? Where there will be weeping and what? Gnashing of teeth. Now, that doesn't sound like a person who's going silently into that outer darkness, who has ceased to be a rebel or who has come to his senses and is wishing that he would have had another opportunity or some such thing as that. And one of the fascinating things of the way C.S. Lewis represents that in his book is that the more these visitors, they go on a bus tour from hell to heaven. I told you it was allegory. They get there, and what they find there, they do not want, even though it's beautiful. Hell's a place, according to C.S. Lewis's uh, imaginations, where everybody lives at a pretty great distance from each other, a lot of empty houses. Why? Because every time somebody came close, they wanted to move to a a neighborhood farther away. 
They didn't want fellowship with others any more than they wanted fellowship with God. Because these are self-absorbed people who have made an idol of themselves, and they still are idolaters in hell. I had three concluding points that I wanted to make. The first was, this whole topic is at the end of the day, in my judgment, one way in which we are tested in our willingness to follow the good word of God where it leads us. We may be inclined, disinclined really, to treat this topic, to pass it by. That's what we're inclined to do. But if we stay within the boundary of scriptures, we will echo in our life, our teaching, our testimony, the confession that I started with of the historic Christian church. Second observation was this. Let's be careful to avoid any inappropriate treatment of the topic. I didn't mention all night Dante's Inferno. Christian art and literature has tended to, in an unduly graphic fashion, sort of lead us away to what, from what really is at the core of the doctrine of hell to all sorts of speculative thoughts about what the wicked suffer uh, throughout all eternity. It's beyond our imagination in any case. So be careful to discipline yourself when you open your mouth and speak of these things. Speak of them you must, but speak of them in a disciplined, sober way. And then most importantly, the last observation is, this not only reminds us this topic of the seriousness of the hour in which we now find ourselves. We're on the threshold. and You know what thresholds are. They're real short. You can step right over them. This little bitty life that one of the hymn writers calls a little day is a tiny little threshold, a hand's breadth, which is an entree into an eternity, either of unimaginable joy and delight in God's presence through Christ and with those who are Christ's, or unimaginable desolation. I'm not so sure we don't all need to confess that if that's true, we haven't prosecuted our calling as Christians to bear testimony to the Lord Jesus Christ with as much urgency and vigor as we ought. If he is, after all, the only way, the only truth, the only life, without which there is only the dreadful prospect of everlasting destruction, Maybe we'll be a little more like the Apostle Paul who pours out his heart in the book of Romans, chapters 9 and following. He agonizes over the prospect of his kinsmen according to the flesh, not coming to know Christ by faith and so be saved. I harbor a, a theory that perhaps some, not all, there are other motives for missions. The principal motives are, are we're compelled by God's love, we're seeking through the salvation of those whom he chooses to save, that God be glorified and that Christ's kingdom come and his church be gathered. But there is also the legitimate motivation out of love for the perishing that they should not perish. I mean, there's not a person in this room. It's a simple example. I'm sure you would concur with it and say your amen to it. If you knew that there was a deadly gas 
that was entering into this building that would kill us all in 15 minutes without our knowing it, you'd fall asleep, you'd exit the building and leave the rest of us here to listen to the rest of Dr. Venema's lecture? I don't think so. I don't think you'd have to know the person's name in the back of the room to do whatever you could to tell them, get out of here, this is a dangerous place. I'm not sure I hear enough of that in the preaching and teaching of the Word of God these days. It's a pretty urgent, serious business. The doctrine of hell has incredible significance for the way in which the church proclaims the gospel and addresses those who still live in unbelief and impenitence before God, as Dr. Venema writes. He says, It cannot be denied that if the biblical teaching about hell is true, then it is scarcely possible to exaggerate the importance of seeking the Lord while he may be found, calling upon him while he is still near. Make sure to stay up to date on all of our podcast episodes. You can find us on our website at midamerica.edu slash podcasts and wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Be sure to search for and subscribe to Mid-America Reform Seminaries Roundtable. I'm Jared Luchibor. Till next time.